Welcome to the Architecture of Contemplation podcast, where every week I sit down with a fellow human and ask which spaces or places do they frequent that provide space for respite and contemplation. Time appears to be sequential, right? Running solely in one direction in an ever-expanding universe. Too often it feels that voluntary pausing is simply not an option. Part of my mission, Hardeep, your host, is to ask the question, in modern times, what are the spaces, the principles of design, the underlying ethic of these restorative moments, and how can we unfold these ever more keenly into our daily lives? In learning about the expansive place of others, what you will find enclosed is an invitation, a call to contemplation, which gives you permission to pause without needing to break first. If you're ready, let's go. Hello friends and fellow human beings. Today I'm speaking with Kevin Kelly. If one were to enter Kevin's name into the Googleometer, much material would surface. He is known as founding executive editor of Wide Magazine, a technologist, a photographer, a writer and an optimist. The list truly runs on. But Kevin self-identifies as a packager of ideas. This conversation is a little different in that Kevin shares many gems from his upcoming book, Excellent Advice for Living, wisdom I wish I'd known earlier. Kevin provides some direct readings, which contain sonorous truths, interlaced with humour and a whisper of irreverence. We also cover topics including Kevin's early bias to making, choosing travel as a form of education over schooling, the lessons of history, being a good ancestor, the art and science of packaging ideas, and the concept of arriving at your place. Intrigued? Then surely you are in for a treat should you be open to the call to self-actualization that this extremely deep concept intimates. When it comes to rest, respite and contemplation, Kevin's excerpts from his book had me contemplating in real time the lessons he had gleaned over an emerging lifetime. He also masterfully coins a symbiotic relationship between rest and work, which he coins as rest ethic and work ethic, respectively. Each episode, I find a word emerges from the conversation. Here, for Kevin, is its elegance. There is a certain poise and coherence in both Kevin's outlook and self-expression. With elegance, the content of Kevin's words ease with grace into one's mind's eye, allowing a certain effortless interaction with ideas that are profound, yes, but utterly actionable, too. Without further ado, I am pleased to bring you Kevin Kelly. Kevin, it's a wonderful pleasure to have you with me. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure, my privilege, and my honor. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Now, to start, there are many titles to your name. Editor, photographer, writer, technologist, um, sage, one could say. Mm -hmm. But could you tell me in your own words, how is it that you spend your time? Hmm. I see myself as a packager of ideas. Sometimes those ideas are my ideas and sometimes there's others, like when I was at Wired and editing magazines. Um, these days, a lot of the ideas are more mine, but I'd like to package them into easily communicable little units, whether that's tweets or a book of advice or magazine articles or websites or podcasts. And all that kind of stuff. And so um, um, I'm probably closer in my heart and my sympathies with an editor. I write, I'm a reluctant writer. <laughs> I write, I love, I don't like writing, but I love having written. And um, I write as a means of thinking. It's, it's the way I think. I, I, I know writers who can have an idea and write it down. I, that doesn't work for me. I don't have ideas until I write. And it's the act of writing that the ideas come, they come out. So I'm writing something and then the ideas come out of that process of writing. And so, um, so I don't think of myself as a writer per se. Um, and then the future stuff is... Um, Half of what I'm doing with that is just trying to predict the present. Just try to see what's actually going on. You know, like I'm 
I'm writing and talking and doing a lot of AI and it's, it's like just to understand what's happening now. That's all we're really saying. It's really, really not about the future. It's really about kind of understanding the present. Fascinating. And I love that framing to predict the present because the degree of scale at which one needs to observe things requires much more than just shifting out of your immediate perspective. It really is looking at sort of the long haul of history to a degree and also an intuition of the general pattern of history as well. And that in itself is a whole study, right? Exactly. The more I was dealing with the future, the more interested I became in history and the more, I mean, that's, I read mostly history. Um, I don't even read that much science fiction anymore. It's a little bit of science fiction, a little bit of history. Um, And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, I hated history in high school and, and it just, traveling and then having to deal with where things are going made me really interested and now I just can't get enough of it and so um, I see those patterns and partly there's patterns that come up again again but also there's momentum about things over time and also the thing about the history that I have found is that just taking that range Mm. helps to take a longer range view of the future so 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 in order to think generationally about things, to become what, what we say, to become a good ancestor. I want to be a good ancestor. That having the stories of the ancestors in the past helps put into that kind of perspective where you can take a generational view of things. And when I'm writing about technology, I try to take a generational view because um, it's actually easier to see the long-term things than it is the immediate short-term because the short term is really unpredictable, but the longer term, there's more of a developmental inevitability, in my opinion, than the short term. Mm. I suppose it's also the nature of the lived experience in the present moment is that which sometimes engenders an inability to look beyond our immediate sort of day-to-day or our own sort of lifespan. So that really kind of sense of the unknowingness grips us in a sort of fear. And so it really takes a stepping out of one's embodied emotions almost, right? To look, as you said, over maybe a hundred year lifespan, two generations. And it takes a very considered mind, I think, to do that, which you've cultivated clearly. Now, before we progress onwards, I do enjoy a slight step back in time because I'm really intrigued about the narratives we place upon the formation of our own identity. I've read somewhat of your earlier life, but I would like you to sort of indulge me, Kevin. So if one were to put put on sort of our virtual reality lenses for a moment (laughs) and we were to go back, perhaps even to a pre-college, Kevin, can you talk me through who that person was as you look back now, some of the trends or interests? So so I've been a, a maker, what we call a maker now all my life. I made things as a kid with very scarce materials um, and no money um, and making um, uh, train layouts and models from, you know, newspaper or paper mache kind of stuff. And then doing whole layouts with little cities. And I mean, it was big, it was, it was four by four feet. And then I made a nature museum. I think around 12 years old, I found a book at the library about how to make a nature museum. And I was collecting different stuff and making exhibits in our neighborhood. And had other kids helping me collect specimens that I was following instructions how to preserve and bottles and all that kind of stuff. And um, made a chemistry lab later on. So I've been, and then house, built a house from scratch. So I've been making things and that that is sort of part of my impulse. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was like a science nerd and took every single math and science doubled up every year to take every single that was even possibly offered. And I couldn't decide whether to go to MIT or go to RISD art school. Mm-hmm. And eventually photography became that union for me of the kind of science-y and arty. And so mm-hmm. I kind of really dived into uh, photography when it was just kind of starting the very beginning of it becoming popular. I mean, in my family, all the things I talked about that I made, there's no photographs of that. 
There's mm. not a single photograph. My family had a little brownie camera and they took 24, one roll, 24 images a year. Wow. <laughs> you, you develop at the end of the year and there'd be one from Halloween and there'd be one from Christmas and one from the birthday party. You know, it's like there's no idea of photography. And that was common. That was this normal thing. And so um, I became involved in photography and that led me um, where, where you're doing the chemistry. You have to develop it in the dark room. That was the only way to do it was to do it yourself. And um, that led me to travel. And I went to um, Asia very early, very young, and had my mind blown. It was just, uh, it's hard to comprehend how, I wouldn't say shocking, but how, um, how different it was from what I grew up in because it was growing up in the Northern Jersey in the fifties and sixties. It was incredibly parochial. It was like just, just very, very small town ish thinking and horizons. And then going to Taiwan, Japan and, and later on India and the rest of the world was like, Oh my gosh, there are several things that happened. One is everything was done out in the open the sense of privacy was very different. So it's like I was there. I was in the middle of it. I could see everything, how how it was done, how it worked, everything. And I could literally walk onto farms or into farmhouses and nobody would be, um, it was like, oh, come on in. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was just um, an education. That was my university. I, was, I had dropped out of college. And so... Um, that was my university, and it was an incredible um, course in humanity, how things were, how alternative ways, and seeing visibly seeing how people raised kids and how they um, arranged their family life and um, the ceremonies they did. And I was trying to record them on film and later on on, on digital images um, because while I was seeing it, it was also very clear that those traditional ways were just passing very fast. Because mm-hmm. at the same time though, that ancient Asia was there, there was this other future that was happening in the cities that was in some ways way ahead of, of where we are, where we were in the West. So, so that's the short version of, uh, of my, it was not very technological. I was not interested in technology at all. I was more hippie-ish and kind of, I had a bicycle and a camera and that was enough. Mm-hmm. And um, I had really no interest in that and didn't, I was kind of resigned to having a very poor non-career uh, life, but I was adamant that I have control of my time. And um, in the book, I talk about the rich have a lot of money and the wealthy have time and it's much easier to be wealthy than rich. So um, make sure you you control your time. That's a glorious walkthrough, Kevin, of the early formation. And what I love in what you're talking about is that almost the, the serendipity in terms of building, um, building towards interests and passions yeah. and being sort of almost blind to the outcome within reason, right? Following the curiosity. It's a, a wisdom we're often told, you know, follow the thing you love and all many manner of things will unfold. You know, this seems yeah. to be what you did. That's, that's, that is the standard thing, kind of follow your bliss. But, but one of the things that I have noticed with my own children too and their friends is that um, while well, 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 I did have a good sense of, what I was passionate about. Not everybody does. And a lot of young people really struggle with saying, I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know. I don't have any passions. How can I give my all to something where I'm not even passionate about it? And I have learned that that can be paralyzing if you insist on following your, your bliss, if you don't know what it is. And so a better recommendation and advice that I now give is, um, doesn't really matter where you start because that's not where you're going to end. Everybody, every remarkable, great person, if you look at their lives, it's just a meandering path of detours and setbacks and right turns and backtracking. And it's completely crooked. 
mm. on their way, and um, it's far from where they where they started. So 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 to arrive at your your place, it doesn't matter where you start. You just want to master something. You this that mastery and that dedication and that deliberate practice, those ten thousand hours that you give to it, that enables gives you a platform to 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 have that meander to you're, you're meandering by mastering things and going forward. So it almost doesn't matter where you're just become aim to be a world-class in something. Mm. Once you begin that process, you'll begin to be able to steer yourself in um, the direction towards where you are not the best, but you are the only. And that's one of my pieces of advice is, don't aim to be the best. Mm. Aim to be the only. Interesting. And also to start as well. The start. idea of a perfect start, a perfect beginning, waiting for the right moment to strike is often where the wasteland of ideas exists, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, you have to have 5,000 bad ideas to have a great idea. You have to have lots of drafts. You have to be able to throw away all the work previously. This is a, something that I really wished I knew earlier was this idea of prototyping and having to redo things i mean i really i just didn't as a kid i i, I wasn't or even as a young person i felt that oh the professional they, they do this perfectly and they you're that's the that's the goal the goal is to kind of like do something once perfect but that's actually not how those things are done they're done by prototyping so you make something in cardboard or something a version of it that you don't expect you're expecting it to to have to throw it away you're expecting it to get it to figure out what it, how it works and how it looks and how it's perfect and the same thing with a book right the, you're not going to write it on one draft you have to have the first draft which you might throw away completely that's expected so so now i expect the fact that that um the professionals are actually expecting to make mistakes and and, and they're not over and they're overcoming them by just kind of redoing them and so mm -hmm. that that sense of having the generous spirit to keep producing things again and again knowing that in that practice of doing it on an ongoing basis um, you have the confidence to know well i can throw that away because there's more where that comes from it's just That's another right. day and tomorrow i'll have some more of it and then we'll do it again and maybe i can keep it maybe not and if not it's fine because i'll do it again and that kind of repetitive habit of creation is really fundamental to getting to the good stuff mm. and of course the, the nature of some of the advice you're talking of relates to the book that you have out excellent right. advice for living and i think it's going to be clear that as we discuss many topics this wisdom will emerge because it's from your experience right it's sure. something you have accrued and so i think what you're talking about in terms of this creativity also not being precious about mm -hmm. it again the idea of iteration, start with something, see where it leads, and using failure just as a technical term. It's not a moral indictment upon right. one's own character, right? It's really just a technical term of, okay, not now, not yet, carry on, right? Exactly. That's important that it's not a moral failure. And that we learned that from science is that it's actually, it's imperative that you have some failures in order to learn that you can't really advance science without having experiments that don't work. If, if every one of your experiences worked perfectly, you're just not learning enough. And same thing with innovation and um, art and everything else. Um, it requires things to try things to the extent where they don't work, to, to where they break, basically. And so, um, and, it's, and, and that, um, and that demoralization of it, as if this is, this is the practice um is very liberating it's very liberating and um um by the way um part of this is my own experience but also part of it comes from watching youtube watching thousands of times people making things very mm -hmm. accomplished the best makers and watching them work and see the, the, the degree to which uh failure is necessary for them to make their best work.
And it also puts me to mind, Kevin, sort of the broader thesis, which I see play out within the nature of the work you put out into the world, is the concept of optimism. And this idea that progress comes hand in hand with a problem presenting itself, Mm -hmm. but that in itself being an opportunity. And technology, by whatever definition we choose to define it, is an unlock if we're willing to have the mindset which says, let me do something that's better, right? Not to assume that all we have are sort of problems and failure points and breakpoints. Um, and that, you know, technology obviously is an area you apply quite often in terms of many of the problems we're seeing. Mm-hmm. But the, the key note of optimism too. So I just wanted to speak to that point because you also spoke, spoke about being a good ancestor. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that concept a touch for me? Yeah, so, so just maybe... Um your um the subject of 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 optimism um yes i'm i'm you know by temperament i'm sunny uh, genetically uh, optimistic but optimism is something you can learn there is learned optimism and you can teach children to be more optimistic and we know from scientific studies that people and children that are more optimistic do better all the kind of measurements that we that we care about, and um, so so even my own the fact that I am generally optimistic, I have deliberately become even more optimistic over time, and I'm getting more optimistic as I get older. And um, uh, that that comes from what we something we mentioned um, reading history. Uh, if if you really look at the data of, of things, you have to acknowledge the fact that there's been progress, huge progress that's still going on, not just technical living standard progress, but moral progress. And um, that makes, will make, should make you optimistic because it's statistically going to continue. It's, it's possible that after 500 years, it stops tomorrow, but it's very, very unlikely. It's mm. much more likely to continue at least for your lifetime and so um and so that optimism i think is um necessary to be a good ancestor because you're kind of it's a kind of trust we're trusting the future so the thing i say about the optimism is that we're realists and 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 um it isn't that we are discounting or that we think our problems are fewer than, than we think, it's that we believe that our capacity to solve the problems is greater and still growing mm. more than we think. And so, so problems propel progress. We're not going to, I'm a protopian, not a utopian. I believe in progress and that the fact that there's inevitable problems and some of them, some of those problems are the biggest problems we ever had. And the more powerful the technology is, the more powerful the problems it creates. But our capacity, again, to solve is also increasing even faster. And that's where my optimism comes. Mm. And so the projects you're involved in, um, one for me comes to mind is the Long Now Foundation. Mm -hmm. How does it fit into this vision that you have in terms of good ancestry, optimism looking at this concept of the long boom as well so how does the long now foundation fit in yeah so lana foundation was started 25 years ago and one of the first projects we did was to try to build this clock inside a mountain that's ticking for 10,000 years it's a gigantic Mm -hmm. clock it's 500 feet tall inside this mountain and it's almost done that's ticking it will tick by itself from the um temperature variations so automatically even without humans is ticking inside this mountain keeping time um and to see the clock and to see the time displayed you, you humans have to turn turn the turnstile to to give the most recent reading of the time and the purpose of this clock which is monumental is to um to remind us about long-term perspective to say, well, there's this clock for 10,000 years. Um, what's it going to be like in 10,000 years? Um, what, 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 you know, um, what would we measure? What, what is it going to see? And um, how often 
should revisit it and how is it maintained? What kind mm-hmm. of, so, so you begin to think about long-term future from the clock. It provokes, um, it's an icon to provoke um, concern about long-term perspectives. And our hope is to begin to inculcate, make thinking generationally the default, the norm, rather than something that's exceptional, which it is these days because of our corporate capitalism cycles of the next quarter or the next year at the most. There's a huge bias against taking a 100-year investment mm-hmm. or even to do science for 10 years. And so um, so we're trying to change that and using the clock as kind of an emblem of that kind of thinking to in a way that we and I and you have benefited from things that have been made by previous generations from the roads to the infrastructure. Um, we should be dwelling on making things that might take more than our own lifetime to complete. And um, that would be one way that we could be a good ancestor. Mm. I was speaking with Ariel Ekblar from the MIT Space Exploration Initiative, and she'd mentioned how the Long Now Foundation had impacted her thinking. And we spoke about the idea of sort of the modern-day cathedral builders. It's multi-generational. And something you actively choose to do, not something you're simply born into because you're a mason, for example. And I think that is also, for me, a very optimistic message that we could all partake in something that's meaningful, that isn't immediate, for me, means that you're just sort of planting the seeds. You don't get to see an oak tree in its fullest fruition, do you, in your own lifetime. It will continue on. And I'm incredibly glad as I walk down an avenue of streets in London that someone had the foresight to plant these trees that I get to now enjoy and see. Yeah, I actually had the pleasure of, I, when I was 17, I planted an acorn uh, in my backyard and uh, with the hope that I would go back in 50 years and see a big oak tree. And I did. I, I, we don't live there. We moved a long ago. But I went back recently to my hometown after 50 years and saw this really huge, probably 80-foot-tall oak tree that I had planted as an acorn as a kid, thinking that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy this in 50 years. That's so, so glorious. Um, yeah. Uh, Yes, plant a tree. That's a great way to be a good ancestor. Mm-hmm. And you know the old proverb, right? The best time to plant a tree was 50 years ago. The second best time is today. Indeed, exactly. They're sort of discounting what is possible in the immediate now right. as exactly. well as the long now as well. Right. So clearly the marshalling of words to bring your message out into the world. So you speak of yourself as a packager of ideas, mm-hmm. an editor, I would also say a curator. That's one of the things yes, I love to do as well. Yeah. yeah, there's incredible ideas out there. It's just how you can mm-hmm. um, put them onto a landscape together where there's coherence, for example. But, you know, you clearly are very adept at distilling certain concepts. And even if one looks to not only the title of your book, Excellent Advice for Living, but also Ode to Otherness, you know, your book chronicling mm-hmm. the dispatches of mm-hmm. your travels. You have, over time, mastered the written word to a degree which can mm-hmm. immediately evoke feeling. So as you embarked upon this book, which we'll discuss, putting down sort of wisdom advice you wish you'd had, what was that process like for you? Really, was it just going along and chronicling things as they came? Mm. Or was there some degree of active sort of development mm. of what this book has become? So, yeah, so there's, there's a book that has 400 little, um, you can almost think of them as tweets. They're, they're, they're very small. They're 140 characters or, or less. Although I wasn't consciously doing that, but that turns out that they are tweetable. Um, I was, I was initially, uh, I've always liked proverbs and maxims and adages and would write down ones for myself as a reminder of trying to condense a whole book of wisdom into a one sentence that I could remember and repeat to myself. And a lot of it was fairly practical stuff. Like uh, I, picked, I picked up a piece of wisdom when I was working at Whole Earth Catalog from one of the editors there. And I could reduce her wisdom to this phrase, which 
it's not exactly as in the book. I'm just kind of saying it, which is that um, when you get invited to do something into the future, six six months from now, whether it's giving a talk or going to a party or going for a walk or giving a sermon, whatever it is, um, ask yourself, um, would I do this if it was tomorrow morning? Mm. Okay, because it's very easy to say yes in six months, but it's going to be tomorrow morning very soon. So you kind of future project yourself and say, would I do this tomorrow morning? Do I really want to do this tomorrow morning? And that use that filter to decide what you say. Mm. So that was... Um, that was helpful for now when I get an invitation by email, whatever it is. And I do all the time. It's like, okay, that sounds interesting. All right. But do, would I want to do that tomorrow morning? Usually the answer is no. <laughs> and so um, that's the answer. And so um, that's an example of the kind of reduction or another example would be, um, again, this took me a long time to understand and I wish I had known it when I was younger, but if, if I lose something in my household that I know I have, I mean, I lose track of it. I know I have this thing. Where is it? And I go hunt around for it, and eventually I find it. And so I'm starting to put it back after I'm done with it. And the, and the little proverb is, don't put it back where you found it. Put it back where you first looked for it. <laughs> That's where you're going to look for it again. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I started to write these things down for myself. And then I, I really believe that they were things that we should have known earlier. And um, I, our kids, our three kids who are young adults now, and um, we, we did not give them advice very much. We didn't talk about that. That wasn't how we, we operated. I, when I grew up, I was, didn't really pay much attention to what my parents said. I paid attention to what they did. Mm. And that's, we decided to try to model our kids' behavior, and that seemed to have worked. Um, but these things I felt like, well, they really should know them. So I started to write them down and say, what do I know that I could tell my kids um, and put into this little handle that they could hold? So I put them into a little one sentence because I could grab hold of it and repeat it. Mm-hmm. And that could change my behavior. And so I started making this list and, and, I, and I decided on my birthday to do the Irish thing of give other people presents on your birthday. And so I... Um, decided to make a list on my 68th birthday of 68 items to give to my kids. And um, I found that once I started doing that, I had more to say, and I did that for a couple more years. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of literally, either during the year, I would make a little note if I thought something, and then other times at the end, I would have to sit down and say, uh, what is it that I know that I really believe that helped me that I think would help someone else. Mm-hmm. So there, so there was both kind of, you know, as, as I thought of them and the other ones, times of actually trying to force myself. Fascinating. So could you give me the great pleasure of hearing a few examples? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so um, there's uh, like, um, um, for instance, I'm, I'm, some of these I'm going to just read and other ones I will um, kind of reconstruct. But um, embrace pronoia, which is the opposite of paranoia. It's a term someone else coined. Choose to believe that the entire universe is conspiring behind your back to help you succeed. And that it goes again to this idea of um, trusting the future, trusting others, trusting the universe. Um and one of the things I say is, um, you know, if, if you treat, if you really trust other people and treat them like they're trustworthy, um, um, occasionally you may be cheated, but that's a small tax to pay for the tremendous benefit of having everybody give you their best because you treated them the best. So, yeah, yeah, if, if you trust everybody, you may actually be cheated every now and then. But that's just a tiny tax compared to the benefits you get from treating everybody like that. Um, so, um, you know, if you, uh, well, here, again, some of this is practical, some of this is more, but your best photo portrait will be taken not while you're smiling, but when you're quiet a minute after you've been laughing. 
So use a photographer that makes you laugh. <laughs> Very good. Because you have this, it's that sort of after, like right now, you you laughed, and now this is the this is the picture that you want to have. Um, mm. So uh, the rich have money, the wealthy have time. It's easier to be wealthy than rich. Um, uh, okay, to speed up a to speed a meeting up. Require that any person who speaks must say something that no one in the else, no one else in the room knows. Very good. I like that. Yes. <laughs> if you don't care about your people, they won't care about your mission. Um, yeah. So, like, uh, uh, your ideal partner is not someone you never disagree with, but someone you're glad to disagree with. Um. Don't define yourself by your opinions because then you can't change your mind. Define <laughs> yourself by your values. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, like, um, it's unfortunate when someone you carefully train leaves, but it's worse if you don't train them and they stay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, so, so what, again, uh, here's, here's a bit of advice for the, for 20 year olds that I like to give, which is, um, what, there's two things. One is, um, uh, if at all possible, if you can all wrangle it, if you're in any way that you can achieve this and not everybody can try to spend a year of your life doing something that looks nothing like success. It should be crazy, weird, unpredictable, um, maybe dangerous, uh, ridiculous, um, a waste of time, uh, goofing off, um, uh, unprofitable, um, uh, you know, a sort of uh, unbelievable, whatever it is, it's something that looks nothing like success and that experience will become the touchstone for your success later on. Mm -hmm. It will be something that you'll come back to again and again. And secondly, when you do begin to kind of work on something um, that is, you know, making money, whatever it is, um, try to work uh, in a place where nobody has a name for what it is that you're doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where it takes some time to explain to your mother what it is. And like, I don't get this. That's a real sign that you are at a really good place, a breakthrough area, a place where you won't have any competition and uh, an area where real innovation can happen. And it's much more likely that you'll be close to, to that place where you're doing something that only you can do because that's my major advice is, again, don't aim to be the best. Aim to be the only. Mm. And that's, that's a huge bar. It's a high bar, really mm. high bar. And it takes most of us, including me, most of our lives to kind of arrive at the place where we know what we're the only about. But it's so powerful to be there because when you're there, you can do what seems like play to you is work to others. And um, you don't have any competition. You don't need a resume. And um, you are doing what, um, is not just what you love to do and what you're good at doing uh, and what is valuable to others, but it's only something that you can do. And so um, that's where we want to be. That's, that's the level. Mm. If you're trying to be the best, you're competing against everybody else. It's usually a very small, limited thing, and it's someone else's idea of success. And what you want to be aiming for is something where your success doesn't really look like what other people's success is. Mm. That's, that's part of what you're doing is you're, is you're in your own movie. You're not an extra in someone else's movie. That's right. You should be the main character in right. your own story right. <laughs> and have that staple somewhere very prominent in this game of life. And I love that advice for the 20 year old, especially that taking that year of abandon, so to speak. Yeah to play and try and change. But I also think one can also look back in time in whatever decade one finds oneself because we are ripe for transformation at any point, I sure. believe, Absolutely. right? 
and if one can also forgive periods of time right. and see what the learnings were truly gleaned, right, right. we can create the narrative again to empower us, right, as we perhaps seek a new chapter, a new way of being. Absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned forgiveness, and that is um, when you forgive others, they may not notice, but you will heal. Forgiveness is not something we do for others. It's a gift to ourselves. And another way to say it's forgiveness is the accepting the apology that you never will get. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I can't imagine you've come up with so many of these one-liners. I mean, my goodness, you could just choose right, right. one and meditate exactly. upon them. Yeah. And, and originally it was called Seeds of Contemplation, and that was the idea, was that um, uh, you can unpack these and you know apply them to your own life. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so um, the foundation of maturity, just because it's not your fault does not mean it's not your responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> a tough one to swallow but very true yeah yeah um, so um uh in 100 years a lot of what we now take to be true will be proven to be wrong maybe even embarrassingly wrong a good question to ask yourself today is what might i be wrong about this is the only worry worth having what are what awesome. am i wrong about because I am undoubtedly wrong about something. Mm, and that's right. what it is. Um, superheroes and saints never made art. Only imperfect beings can make art because art begins with what is broken. If someone is trying to convince you it's not a pyramid scheme, it's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Buyer beware. Right, right. Um, so this is this is something I picked up from Walt Disney. Uh, don't create things to make money. Make money so you can create things. The reward for good work is more work. I could not agree more. And um, uh, treat employees well enough so that they can get another job, but treat them no. Train employees well enough that they can get another job, but treat them well enough that they never want to. Um, so, uh, yep, attend as many funerals as you possibly can and listen to what people talk about. They don't talk about what the person achieved. They talk about how they made you feel. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, when you lend something, pretend you're gifting it. If it's mm. returned, you'll be surprised and happy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. How to apologize quickly, specifically, sincerely. Don't ruin an apology with an excuse. And here, so this is maybe the last one. Uh, the thing that made you weird as a kid can make you great as an adult if you don't lose it. Very good. I like that. Right. Go um, back and find it and nurture it. Right. Yes. So um, you don't need to attend every argument you're invited to. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are many lessons here for one to ponder on, and yes. I really appreciate you walking me through some of these. Now, the nature of our conversation has been partly to do with the nature of your background, your interests, mm. and obviously the book you've written. The piece that I'd like to sort of end on in the few minutes we have left is more around the word you mentioned already is contemplation. So let's talk about that word very briefly. What does that word conjure up for you when you hear it, when you use it? What feelings or thoughts well, you know my un unfiltered on thing i think of monks um and there was a great book by the monk thomas merton um which was seeds of contemplation and um uh so i have some kind of you know kind of a religious spiritual association with contemplation but um uh i i, I think I'm, I think you're using it in a, in a broader sense, which is really great. I, I really like that word, and I think it would be—I think it would be a more useful word and should be in more circulation. We should use it broadly, um, because it entails or it suggests to me a um, a pausing, a a um, going deep, a, a, a way of, um, or expansion maybe is, is even the word, 
um, that is um, that is orthogonal to the general direction of action. It's sort of um, that's the image I have of there's action happening, and then orthogonal to that is this contemplation, which is kind of revealing other dimensions to whatever it is that you're looking at or considering. And mm -hmm. it's sort of like, um, you could take this moment right now, decide we were going to contemplate this moment. And so it's like, well, what else is going on? What's not being said rather than what's being said. It's mm -hmm. sort of expanding the dimensions of whatever it is that's under consideration. and things always have more dimensions that are visible. And that's sort of what, to me, contemplation is about. Fascinating. And I think when we're sort of taking the senses out of it, of course, one is thinking, but almost sort of grounding down as deep into the moment as one could go mm -hmm. and seeing what it could reveal. I mean, that, right. that sounds important to me there as well. Now, when you are, Kevin, you mentioned sort of our personal, spiritual, religious base, but perhaps it lends to this next question. When you personally are in need of rest and solace, mm. contemplation, I know they're individual words, but they're part of that right, sort right. of landscape of inward right, right, life. Right, right. Are there specific places, people you spend time with, or places you seek out when you're cultivating that change of state? Um, a, a little bit. I'd like to walk. I, I, I contemplate while I'm walking. I, I find walking and contemplation go peanut butter and jelly. And so there, it's um, for me. I'm a you know pedestrian contemplator, and um, uh, the so that motion, that movement, to me is where I do a lot of contemplation. Is is that kind of rhythm, um, but. I do believe that that um, uh, I'm a huge believer in slack, in wasting time and goofing off, which I think are really underrated. And um, I think you should have as many Sabbaths, sabbaticals, vacations, staycations, breaks. So one of my bits of advice is that taking a break is not a sign of weakness is a sign of strength and um, I think that in order to have a really good work ethic you have to have a good rest ethic and so so I'm a big believer in this sort of um, the mode of the, the retreat and as I said for me it's not a particular place it's more of this kind of rhythm of walking mm. gorgeous and I really love that rest ethic, work ethic. That's powerful. Now, just as we wrap up, I have one very final question, which I like to ask all of my guests. And it's around this concept I've coined the age of the steward. And for me, what steward means and stewardship is that each individual takes some degree of personal responsibility with the skills they have, perhaps the passions, the interests, the opportunities they have, and contribute in some meaningful way to an even better future. It can take any form, art, science, within family life. For you, Kevin, is there something you could share with me that you would either like to be a steward of or to steward hmm. in? Hmm, that's a good question. Let me think about that. Um, well, one of the things I, again, learned maybe late coming is that when you own property, you actually are a steward of that. And there are responsibilities for maintaining things that are not evident when you are younger or when you're first buying things. You think, oh, you know, I own it. Well, you, you now own a lot of responsibilities and liabilities. And um, like, for, you know, when I was younger, I think, you know, 30 acres, they really be cool. But now I think 30 acres, that's a lot of responsibility. You have a lot of stuff that you're stewarding. You are responsible for the erosion and all kinds of weird stuff that you don't think about when you're young. So, so, so even we have a little tiny lot 
house, but even that is a story of some sort that will continue and we want to have it in good shape for whoever is the steward next. Um, the Long Now Foundation, the clock, and the funder of it, who is Jeff Bezos, talks about we're the steward of this clock. It's going to be 10,000 years, so we're the current stewards of something that will go on over time. But more personally, um, steward of, what am I stewarding? Um, I have a library here, a two-story library, many, many, many thousands of volumes, but actually I, I don't really feel attached to it that I'm stewarding those. Um, I'm not sure um, what I would say I feel personally responsible for stewarding. Maybe, um, you know, my, my mission, which is to kind of increase learning in the world, help other people learn, and, and my goal, my, my, what I hope, the reason why I write my articles what I'm maybe what I'm stewarding is is trying to um, increase the number of opportunities for everybody in the world to be their only and to find a way to express their genius, which I believe honestly, wholeheartedly, that every person as they have an individual face, they have an individual combination of talents and geniuses that that only they have like their face. And that I want to be involved in trying to enable them and often requires new technology to enable them to share and find and express their, their genius. And that is, um, so, 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 uh, so maybe really, as I think about this, what I feel I'm shepherding is technology itself, the whole of technology, the technium, I call it. And, and I'm, and I'm, maybe trying to, to, to steer it a little bit and to guide it, the technium, but also to make clear to people that we should also be trying to, to use it to maximize these, um, these opportunities. Wonderful. Well, I'm so appreciative, Kevin, of you taking the time to spend with me to share that final mission as well, which I think you've done a glorious job in and continue to do. So I'd like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time you've taken to hear me out and to rant about some of my favorite bits of wisdom, which is in this book, Excellent Advice for Living, which will be out in May. And as I said, there's a bunch more there. Um, and it's really aimed at the young and young at heart. So um, thank you for having me. Thank you. I hope you truly enjoyed my conversation today. I'd love to hear from you. Please do leave a comment Spotify wherever you are listening and tell me what is a space or place that gives you that moment of pause. And you never know, I may just share it here. So keep listening out. Finally, if this episode resonated and you think it might do the same for someone you cherish, then do leave a very nice comment and a five-star rating. That way, the universe will know I'm not a solo architect, but part of a much larger, wonderful team of builders. And until next time, I wish you much peace.